Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 919. On this week's episode, David Lorelo welcomes Andy Freed, radio broadcaster for the Tampa Bay Rays, and Dan Hasty, voice of the West Michigan Whitecaps. The trio discusses Dan's recent opportunity to call a major league game, and Andy reflects on his own call to the show. They also discuss the logistical challenges of calling baseball games lately, as well as the longest contests they have ever had to broadcast. David also brought a pack of baseball cards to open live on the show, as they discuss players like Austin Meadows and Buck Farmer that come out of the foil. Finally, Dan shares his goose story, which simply must be heard. I think this is turning into the wildlife episode. You have cited a goose, a loon, and a crow, Dan, in the last few minutes. Andy, can you top that story? No. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think, Dan, if you ever start a podcast, it should be called Shock the Goose. That sounds like a really, really good title. After that, Ben Clements and Eric Longenhagen play catch-up on what's been going on in baseball and with each other. Ben is still stuck on Corbin Burns, and pitchers in general have been really impressive. The umpires, however, have seemed to struggle, even if the data doesn't support that feeling. After diving into that, Ben and Eric discuss the pursuit of a pitching machine that can throw real sliders, as well as the challenges facing trying to develop the mythical left-handed catcher. There are all these little threads to pull, the possible repercussions of someone trying this and what it might mean for like the meta game, basically. Yeah, My guess is just that it's so small that the fact that pitchers feel a little uncomfortable overwhelms it. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. If you enjoy the podcast, or any of the other wonderful things we offer at Fangraphs.com, consider an ad-free membership. It truly is the best way to support the site and make sure we can keep everything running. We simply could not do it without all of your help, especially over the last year. Thank you so much. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guests on this segment are two broadcasters, Andy Freed, the radio play-by-play voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, and Dan Hasty, the voice of the West Michigan Whitecaps, the Whitecaps being the Detroit Tigers' high-A affiliate. Gents, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Dan, I think that we need to start with you. The minor league broadcast season has not started yet, but you called a baseball game this past Sunday. How much fun was that? Well, it was certainly hectic. And of course, you know, Andy, I'm sure, has a story to tell about his first game. But I did not expect to have literally zero time to prep for my first Major League Baseball game. (laughs) If I had more time to process that, I think I would have been a little more freaked out. Uh, But I got a call about four hours before first pitch. And uh, when you live three hours away from the ballpark you need to be at, you need to move quickly. And so I guess what happened was, was Matt Shepard, the television voice of the Tigers, came down ill in the morning. And so they moved Dan Dickerson, the radio broadcaster, who I know, Andy, you know well, over to television. And so that created an opening on radio. And uh, while the Tigers were coordinating with uh, Bally Sports Detroit, their executive producer had said to the Tigers, you know, it said, uh, you know, it's only three hours from Grand Rapids to Detroit. Hasty probably could make it. <laughs> and I'm really, I'm really grateful he said that because uh, I got a phone call, like I said, about 11.30 in the morning on Sunday before a 4 o'clock first pitch. And I looked down and I saw it was the Tigers. And I was thinking, 
That's kind of weird for them to call on a Sunday morning. They usually don't call on the weekends like that. But I, again, and Andy understands this too, you kind of don't tell yourself like, is this the call? This has got to be the call. This is the one I've been waiting for. Like you kind of convince yourself that it's not the call. And so uh, long story short, they texted and said, can you call me back right away? And that's my dog whistle, right? Like that's like the moment where I'm going, oh man, maybe this is it. And so sure enough, they told me the situation and uh, I can tell you it did not take very long for me to call that that team back. So it was a, it was a very fulfilling day, even if there were some complications and some challenges within it. Right. And we will talk about that in a moment. But Andy, let's go back to you. What was your first call up to the big leagues? Was it as a fill-in or was it for a permanent job? Actually, there is no such thing as a permanent job, (laughs) a full-time job. (laughs) Good point, uh, David. First, I just do want to say congratulations to Dan, because I know what that feeling is like uh, to get that call that you've been waiting for literally your entire life. Uh, for me, I had gotten close to a couple of big league jobs and finished, uh, as, as the hiring person had said, in second place. I had one guy that said to me uh, from the Angels, he goes, you'll never know how close you were to getting this, uh, but we have to go with someone else. And then finally, when the uh, Rays offer came, uh, that came in the winter of 2005. And uh, after the whole interview process and you know, w- waiting what seemed to be forever, they were a couple of weeks late in when they said they were going to make their final decision. And then finally it came, I can tell you, and Dan, you could appreciate this, February 1st, 2005 at 3.58 p.m. I can tell you exactly the moment when, uh, when uh, my life changed and was able to make a better life for my wife and daughter at the time. And uh, it was an incredible moment because you work your whole life for it and uh, they, you know, it, it's funny when you get to the major leagues and I'm lucky and very fortunate to have been there for a while now, you can look back and say, or maybe from the outside, it looks like, well, it, it all worked out. It looked like it always was going to, there was never any guarantee of any of this ever working out. I know plenty of guys that are in the minor leagues that are more than capable. They would be very good major league announcers. And for whatever reason, they just haven't had that opportunity. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have had that opportunity. And, and I can tell you, uh, when that moment came, it was emotional. You know, I can remember in tears all the way home because I couldn't wait. And, and and the cool part about it was, it was less about me and more about making uh, a better life for my family. You know, you don't make much money in the minor leagues. And when you've done it for 11 years, you wonder, is it ever going to happen? Are we ever going to be able to really do anything? All the things that we had planned to do as a family, but you can't do it because you're hamstrung because you don't make any money. Uh, and it's not really about the money. But there does come to a point when you get to your 30s that you want to live your life a little bit and this endless stage of what if it happens, maybe it'll happen, maybe it'll never happen, what do we do, could finally end. So for me, it was much more emotional knowing that I could finally say to my wife, all the years that you helped me and supported me through the minor leagues and the overnight bus rides and the times that I wasn't there, now I can turn back to you and say, we're going to be able to have a much better life. That was the part to me that was most emotional, even more than just reaching a personal goal. And you were in an excellent place, Andy, to get called up. I knew you at the time, of course, you were a broadcaster for the Pawtucket Red Sox, where I believe you followed Don Orsillo. I believe your broadcast partner may have been Dave Fleming, if I'm remembering correctly. There have been several Paw Sox broadcasters who have gone to the big leagues. Yes, starting with uh, Gary Cohen. You know, Gary Cohen, the voice of the Mets, was voice of the Pawtucket Red Sox for a little while, and, uh, and Don Orsillo, and then after me, a couple other guys. I think it, that's something that's, for whatever reason, taken on a bit of a life of its own. I, I think it's more coincidence than anything. I, I know that there's lots of guys that 
that deserve a big league shot that have been with other teams. I could probably name name you five off the top of my head that haven't gotten the opportunity that I wish they would have. And, and I wish somehow maybe in some way they still could. But the, the whole Pawtucket link is really kind of a myth that has is, is, gotten a life of its own. There was nothing individually, intrinsically at an advantage of working for Pawtucket than any other minor league team. It just uh, it just happened to work out that way. And I, and I think now other teams have looked at that situation and say, well, they, they have a track record. But I, I, that's just, to me, a coincidence. There's, there's plenty of guys out there that could be in the big leagues that were at other minor league teams. And with advantages and disadvantages in mind, Dan, you mentioned having no time to prep. You also had the disadvantage of you called your first game in an empty stadium. You're right. And uh, it's funny, uh, before this, uh, I was actually looking at a video and uh, it was actually about the Rays radio booth having to deal with monitors during the playoffs last season and how complicated it was and, and kind of how it kind of takes away some of that experience and, of course, the atmosphere that, that you would be leaning on in that moment. Uh, you know, the, the zero prep time at the end of the day, guys, I mean, I, I hadn't been prepped ex- ex- technically for that particular game, but I had been prepping for that phone call for my entire career. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I just, I've been around the Tiger system long enough to just know everything I needed to know in that situation. So, you know, an otherwise nerve wracking situation really was, was replaced by just sheer excitement for the opportunity. And, you know, to Andy's point, being able to share that with, you know, with your wife. And I remember just the satisfaction that really came from me on Sunday was being able to share it with those people that had a hand and, and invested time and energy and resources into even putting me in a position where I would get a phone call like that. That was really the, the joy that I took from the experience on Sunday. But as to answer your question about the monitors, that was different. You know, I hadn't called baseball on the radio in almost two years because, of course, minor league baseball got whacked in 2020. The last time I'd called a Whitecaps game was September of 2019. It had been a really long time. So there was that. And there was also the fact that I had never called games off monitors before. So I remember on the way to Comerica Park on Sunday, one of my calls was to Dan Dickerson. And I just said, hey, like, teach me on the fly here. Where do I look? Like, give me a routine here, like pre-pitch, during pitch, post-pitch. How do I... How do I just look where I need to look to get exactly what I need conveyed across? And he was really helpful, and that helped a, a ton going into an unfamiliar situation. Right. The game was, of course, in Oakland. I was at Fenway Park last night. game started a little earlier than the game that Andy called remotely that was played in Kansas City. I listened to uh, a few innings of the broadcast walking home, and I was thinking, I was thinking ahead to this conversation and thinking about the the remote and whenever i would hear crowd noise i would wonder is that piped in from oakland coliseum or whatever they they're calling that these days or was uh do you have it from the studio andy we are in the uh, at the ballpark at tropicana field and we're looking at i have about a series of three different monitors and when everything works technically perfectly it's still kind of just okay uh, the, the, the sound is being piped in from the actual ballpark itself. Um, and, and obviously the video is coming from the ballpark where we're playing as well, but it, it is fraught with technical issues. Uh, so like right now I'm being perfectly honest, I have a splitting headache because my eyes are strained from staring at monitors and, and trying to have it all synced up in my head 
when you're getting video at about three different speeds and sometimes the audio is synced up with it and sometimes it isn't. My fear in all this is that our bosses are gonna say, you know what, it sounds okay and it sounds uh, decent. Maybe they don't need to travel anymore <laughs> because I can tell you trying to do a baseball game over monitors that some part of the game is on delay and part of it isn't and the sound isn't synced up, it scrambles your brain and uh, the eye strain and the headaches that it gives you I'm glad it, it may sound okay on the air, but to the broadcaster itself, it's it's really been a nightmare. Oh, I, I am sure. Let's change direction a little bit, uh, maybe a few times in a row. Dan, I know that you have some good minor league broadcasting stories that you've told me over the years. One is I believe you were once attacked by a goose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you haven't lived until you've made a goose angry. Uh, so... I was walking, I was in uh, Midland, Michigan, where the Great Lakes Loons play. It was actually my first job in baseball out of college. Uh, we had Clayton Kershaw on that team, and Kenley Jansen, and Carlos Santana. It was a good, it was a good squad. It's ironic that they lost like 100 games. So uh, so anyways, I uh, was in Midland. It was 2015 for a Whitecaps Loon series. I just started with West Michigan. And uh, the hotel, a nice hotel, had a movie theater across, kind of across the street. But there was this big grassy field that you needed to walk through to get there. Well, instead of going around it, I decided to, you know, go as the crow flies. And so as I was walking towards it, I got all of a sudden way too close to what I realized was a nesting Canadian goose and I was like oh excuse me so like I went to like try to walk around and get out of its way and then all of a sudden from behind me I hear you know kind of a kind of an angry squawk kind of looking at me like what the hell are you doing here and I look behind me and it's it's apparently Papa Goose and so he stared over at me and started to squawk at me and I was like oh hey I was just leaving and uh, then he started flapping his wings and he took off in my direction and I turned my head and he actually like whacked me in the back of the head hard enough to actually knock my hat off my head. And so, uh, so anyways, at that point I realized I was under attack. And so the next thing I did uh, was I tried to move a little bit faster to, to get out of Dodge, but the, the goose was apparently not done with me yet. And so I saw him start to flap his wings again, started to squawk and flew straight at me again. And I, I've never been in a situation where I've been attacked by an animal. Hell, I've never been even in a, as much as a fist fight. So, so, so anyways, this thing came to me and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So my first instinct is this goose is coming at me. I don't know what it's trying to do to me. I just took my right hand, cocked it back and threw a haymaker. <laughs> So, and I landed it, weirdly enough. And so I think that shocked the goose and uh, stunned him to the point where he, he came back and looked around like, what the hell just happened? And so I uh, I said like something like, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to leave here. And so uh, it, it tried to take off again for me, but I think it just said, you know what, forget it. It's not worth it. I think this is turning into the wildlife episode. You have cited a goose, a loon, and a crow, Dan, in the last few minutes. Andy, can you top that story? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think, Dan, if you ever start a podcast, it should be called Shock the Goose. That sounds like a really, really good title. <laughs> I'm telling you that that was, you know, my that was only a couple of weeks into my you know job with West Michigan. I remember thinking like, 
was this initiation? Like, was this the moment like, like, like I had to have in order to, to feel like I'm a minor league baseball broadcaster? Cause it sure felt like it. That is outstanding. Wow. So, so no good stories at all, Andy. Oh man, there's tons of stories, but nothing like punching a goose right in the face. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's one heck of a story. Uh, I, I mean, there's a million stories, but that, that was really something. To <laughs> yeah. Let, let's go with, with long games. You know, now that we have this silly new runner on second rule, you know, the Paw Sox are of course known for the longest game in history. You certainly have not had to deal with that, but what is the longest game you have called? Oh, longest one was probably in the big leagues. The Rays had an 18-inning win, which was coming down the stretch in the 2013 season. Uh, we were trying to keep pace uh, for the wild card at the time, and we had a game that went uh, 18 innings and finally won it. And it was, of course, of course, if you're going to go 18 innings, it has to be in front of a day game the next day, which uh, which it was. And as it turned out, the Rays won them all. So, the, you know, those wins, when you when you get them and it matters down the stretch, it uh, it they seem to build character and they you tend to remember those. I, I can remember, and, and Dan, I don't know if you've had this moment also in the minor leagues, but I can remember the first. You know, when I was in single A ball, I was broadcasting just by myself, and I can remember the first time that I had an extra inning game that went. I forgot what it was: 14, 15, 16 innings, and you're by yourself, and it's wonderful training. Uh, it's training for your voice to stay strong that long. It trains you for keeping focus. Because, you know, you really got to focus, especially when you're by yourself. And I'm in the Florida State League, and there's probably 50 people at the game at most. And it's, you know, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. And you're calling a baseball game. And, you know, if you can keep that alive, if you can keep that sounding interesting and keep your energy up, uh, then that, that's fabulous training. That, that's about as hard as it will get. It, it doesn't – as you go up in the minors and there's more people at games and there seems to be more on the line whether there is or not, uh, that that's easier than doing a single A game in about the 17th or whatever it was inning at two in the morning. You don't know if anyone's listening. You don't even know if your engineer in the studio is still listening. Uh, but the fact that you can do it, it's really fantastic training for what you'll eventually be doing. And that's why I've always felt that spending 11 years in the minor leagues was like getting a postgraduate degree in the industry of baseball. You learn all aspects of it. Uh, you learn how to broadcast it. And if you can keep those alive and interesting, then doing big league ball is easy. I, I will tell you this. There there was my story for the longest game actually came before affiliated ball. I was in the Coastal Plain League doing the Wilson Tobs. Uh, that is short for tobacconists, by the way. Great logo, like a golden tobacco leaf. Coolest logo to, to this day I've ever seen. So I was calling a game in Columbia, South Carolina. Before this particular 7 p.m. game, there was a celebrity softball game on the field which uh, I guess they needed an extra body for. So they asked me to go out there and like play left field. Thankfully, I never had a ball hit to me. But uh, I was out in left field, and this was leading up to about a half hour before first pitch, but I was fully prepped, so I had no problem with it. So anyways, uh, very end, they all said, you know, hey, come on over to the hospitality tent. And I was like, no, I, I'm going upstairs. I got a game to call. And they're like, well, here, take a couple of beers for after the ball game. They got a cooler upstairs. You can throw it in there. So little did I know, as soon as I got up to the press box and I just tossed a couple beers into the, into the cooler, we got a torrential downpour. And we ended up with a two and a half hour rain delay. Our game did not start until 9.30 that particular night. And wouldn't you know it, that game lasted 14 innings. So we, about the 11th inning, my board op, my producer back in the studio, fell asleep. 
so I had no ability to throw to a commercial break. And I was all out of water. I had nothing to drink. My voice was absolutely just just totally exhausted. And I'm like, I don't know what, what else I'm supposed to do here. I, I My throat is literally getting sore, getting scratchy. I need something to drink. And then I was like, wait, do I have a beer in the fridge over there? <laughs> so sure enough, that was the time where I cracked a beer and had it during the 12th inning of a game I called. I'll never forget it. Right. A likely story is the uh, term coming to mind. All out of water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, I'm going to do another change of pace here. A few days ago, I bought a 40 pack of Topps baseball cards, and I'm going to open them right now. And for every Detroit Tiger or Tampa Bay Ray, I am hoping to get a story or at least some information on that player from the two of you. <laughs> I like that. And on the odd chance that there is not a Tiger or a Ray, I guess maybe I will default and go with Andy. You, you played the Royals last night, so I could ask you about any Royal. And Dan, you had Oakland A's. But with 40 cards, I don't think we're going to be out of luck. First card is Austin Meadows. There we go. Literally the first card in the pack. <laughs> you know what's funny is that Austin Meadows, there's actually some similarities for the Tampa Bay Rays and for the Detroit Tigers. Absolutely. Uh, Austin Meadows' younger brother Parker is a Tigers prospect. He's a top 10 prospect, and we'll probably have him in West Michigan this year. And Austin got a chance to see him uh, this year play, finally, when they, uh, the last game of spring training was uh, the two of them together, which for uh, Austin's mom must have been quite a moment. For sure. So, Andy, tell me something about Austin beyond that. Well, where do we start? I mean, you know, this is a guy, when we traded for him, I say we as if I had something to do with it. Uh, when the Rays traded for him, uh, that, that trade will turn out to be probably the greatest trade in Rays history. The only other one might be when we traded Delman Young to the Twins and got Matt Garza and Jason Bartlett and won the pennant the next year. But, but trading Chris Archer uh, and getting back Kyler Glass now and Austin Meadows and Shane Boz is the sort of trade that uh, not only gets general managers fired, as it did for the Pirates, but uh, it, it can help turn a franchise and, and launch it to the next level. And that's what it did for the Rays. I and mean, we've gotten a couple of all-star players. And, and then to, to make matters worse for the Pirates, we've now since re-signed Chris Archer. So we've gotten all four players in the trade. And the Pirates, unfortunately, uh, it didn't work out well for them. You know, Austin had a breakout year for the Rays in 2019. And then last year, he got hit by COVID. And it's wild how COVID affected, I mean, to this moment, it still affects everybody differently. Some people, it knocks out. Other people, they just seem to deal with it. And, you know, there were two players last year for the Rays positionally that, that got hit by it. One was Meadows and one was Randy Rosarena. Austin got really nailed by it and ended up getting kind of out of shape and never really got his timing back. For Rosarena, he didn't get hit by it that bad, except he was quarantined and ended up doing 300 push-ups a day because he was bored inside of his apartment and turns into Superman with all this new strength for the postseason. So it, it's wild. I mean, to Austin's credit, he worked really hard this past offseason and got himself into fabulous shape, and he's off to an outstanding start. Last night, he hit a home run in the ninth inning. He basically won the first two games for us with a couple of home runs. But, you know, it, this era of COVID is bizarre how it hits people differently. It got Austin and his wife and just knocked them back. Still, though, Austin, to his credit, even though last year was not a great year for him, his home run in Game 5 of the Division Series against the Yankees, Alf Garrett Cole, made it a 1-1 tie and set things up later for Mike Brasso's heroics off of Roldis Chapman. 
Right. And with that team in mind, there were two other race cards here. One is Lake Snell is actually not a race, so we can toss this side. The other was the team card, which lets me know that the team won 40 games last year. And it's presumably the best 40 win team in, in Major League history. <laughs> You know that that that's perfect, David. That you got the Rays team card because that's what this this franchise is all about uh, in a number of ways. I mean, I, we've got to be the only team that basically has a rotation at every position in the field. There's like three guys, if not more, that play every position in the field. Uh, the only exception might be Kiermaier tends to play center every day when when uh, when he's healthy. But outside of that, it, it's a full team effort, and I think more than anything else is that the pitchers on this team have bought in to working egoless without really defined roles. Uh, I'll give you a great example. Diego Castillo is a guy that was basically working mostly seventh and eighth inning situations for us, but Nick Anderson got hurt, Pete Fairbanks got hurt, Chaz Rowe got hurt, uh, Cody Reed got hurt. So Diego has been the high leverage guy regardless of what inning it is. You know, He saved a couple of games for us, but then the other day in New York, he was asked to come in in the seventh and pitch the seventh and eighth innings. And Kevin Kaschett can't say enough about these guys that that are willing to do that, even though it doesn't pump up their save total necessarily. It may not help them in arbitration. But in terms of uh, being selfless and helping the team win, that's what this Rays team is all about. You, you, if you play the game of, okay, who are we playing? Are we better at each position than the other team? Most times we're not. Uh, if you play, is their third baseman better than our third baseman? Is their shortstop better than our shortstop? Most times the Rays don't win that. But when you pull it all collectively together and and manage it through the way that the Rays manage it, and I don't mean just Kevin Cash, I mean from baseball uh, operations department, general manager to the owner, down to the manager, uh, somehow they've seemed to figure it out because they've gotten all these numbers to work for them. And a lot of that is through communication. It's for preparing pitchers and players for what they're going to do when they come to the Rays. And more times than not, these guys have really welcomed it. And that's why I think it's appropriate that you got a team card. We're much more a team than any individual. And now we will go to the Tigers. I don't have the team card, but there is a Tigers card, fortunately, in, in the pack, Dan. And it is a player who I think might even be a, a former West Michigan Whitecap, which is Buck Farmer. Of course. Yeah. Good old Buck. He, uh, he's interesting in, in a lot of different ways. First of all, one of the best guys you'll ever meet. He's uh, He actually got the microphone on opening day at Comerica Park this year. Of all the players that the Detroit Tigers could have had address the fans and welcome them back for the very first time, I thought it was interesting that it was Buck who ended up being the person to do that. George, actually, his original first name, his, his given name, if you will. Uh, but, uh, but, but Buck, uh, you know what? He is interesting in one sense, at least in terms of the West Michigan Whitecaps, is that Buck has gone down in Whitecaps history as the only player to play for West Michigan and for the Detroit Tigers within the same calendar year. He ended up starting. He was a former Georgia Tech Yellow Jacket, and he was fantastic with West Michigan. And the Tigers were really, really beat up for pitching back in 2014. And this was when they were fairly competitive. They were still competing for division titles and still trying to win a World Series. They had just gotten knocked out the season prior by the Boston Red Sox in the American League Championship Series. So they ended up using him 
late in the season uh, for probably about a month and a half. I think he got his call in August, but he was with West Michigan up until about the very end of June. So the turnaround did not take very long. But but Buck Farmer, somebody that did play in West Michigan and, again, made his major league debut in, in mid-August. So, you know, he didn't have a lot of success as a starting pitcher, but once he went to the bullpen, he really found his footing, and he's become somebody that's made a long career out of it. Right. And I concur on Buck Farmer. And this is based on just a few conversations. Definitely a a good guy. And we are running out of time. But I should ask you, Dan, about players that we may see in West Michigan this year. There's some pretty some pretty notable prospects you may see. Yeah, well, the switch from low to high A is so significant for West Michigan. And a lot of people, and, and Andy can understand this too, is that people don't understand how big of a deal that is. I've had people say, okay, well, what's the difference between low and a high A? At the end of the day, the difference is probably Spencer Torkelson, the first overall pick in last year's draft out of Arizona State. I think he'll probably, and right now, a number three overall prospect in baseball, depending on what list you look at. But I think he ends up there, and I think probably somewhere close to 10 of the Tigers' top 30 prospects are in West Michigan to start this season. So I think there's a lot of excitement, a lot of optimism for at least having something fun and entertaining to watch. Tigers have gone all in on position players. As you know, they really started their rebuild on pitching. The guys like Matt Manning and... Casey Mize and Tarek Skubel. Now they're trying to fill out a lineup card. And a lot of those guys are everyday players that you'll begin to see in West Michigan starting this season. Right. And you have had some fantastic players in recent years. I know Isak Paradis was there. Tarek Skubel was there. I do not recall if Casey Mize was a white cap or not. He never played for the Whitecaps, and this actually with Torkelson, we're, we're certainly just going on speculation right now. Al Avila, the general manager for the Tigers, has said as much that he thinks Torkelson will start in West Michigan, but if he does, he will be the first ever first overall pick. You go back in, in time, and there's not been a lot of number one picks that have come to West Michigan. Uh, Casey Mize was one. He didn't come to West Michigan. You want to go way far back, Matt Anderson, who was taken back in the late 90s. He never made it to West Michigan. A lot of the high picks usually skipped over low A, but it looks like that won't be the case now that the Whitecaps are a high A affiliate. Okay. And as we are running out of time, maybe I will throw one to Andy. Who is a, I mean, you had many, many players in Pawtucket. Who's an interesting story that maybe isn't a big name? Oh man. Who's an interesting, that isn't a big name. Uh, gosh, this is, we're talking 17 years ago. I'm trying to remember. I mean, we had plenty of guys that made it. I mean, I think a guy like Bronson Arroyo, but I mean, to me, for some reason, he stands out more than many others because, you know, to me, he was like a self-made pitcher. I, I love those guys that make it through the minor leagues, and it's not like they ha- they're they always high prospects and throw 98 with a fastball. And to me, he's just a guy that worked his way through the minor leagues and figured out a way to get it done. You know, a, a lot of slow-breaking balls. He had to tinker and really toy with a lot of things. On top of it, he was just an interesting guy, a laid-back guy from kind of the wilds of, of Florida. He's from a real small populated place, as I remember. And he was just so easily approachable. I can remember he would bring his his guitar on the road and he'd, he'd play songs to himself, his acoustic guitar in his hotel room. I can remember after he threw a perfect game for us, which really launched, I think, his big league career in many ways, I made a copy of the audio tape just to give to him. And this is just a couple days later, and we're up in Rochester, and I knock on his door and say, I thought you might want this, and we chatted for a while. He was just sitting there in his shorts, no shirt, just playing acoustic guitar. And I'm like, you know what? This guy, I hope he does something with his career, because he's just such a likable guy, an unassuming sort of player. 
And for some reason, of all the years in the minors, that was one of the guys that I rooted for the hardest. Uh, you know, there's plenty of guys that come through that have more talent. And Dan, you could speak to this, I'm sure, in West Michigan. There's lots of talent. But a lot of it comes down to who can will themselves to the major leagues, who can deal with the inevitable failure. Everybody that is in the minor leagues is probably the best player that came out of their hometown, especially a small hometown. Uh, you know, I think of a guy like Mike Brasso for the Rays right now, you know, a guy that was non-drafted. And you talk, if, if, if the organization doesn't have much financially invested in you, you got to make them really want to bring you up. And, uh, and, and the fact that a guy like that could get to the majors and have a signature hit like he did against Chapman and a guy like Arroyo could go to the majors and pitch as long as he did in the major leagues, those are the guys I love. I mean, prospects are fun, but to see those guys that really are kind of on the fringes uh, all, all but force their organization to take a chance on them by bringing them to the major leagues, uh, those to me are my favorite guys uh, ever to be around. Right. And uh, I think we should close. Andy, I think you have a very important appointment that, that you need to get to. Dan, hopefully the call up that you just had will eventually be a real one and you can join Andy, maybe not in the same booth, but in the American League. Thank you, both of you gentlemen, for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Well, thank you. And Dan, I hope to get a chance to meet you. And uh, again, I'm, I'm thrilled for this opportunity you're getting. And, and I'm sorry I have to bolt, but I, I have my second COVID shot coming and I was told do not be late. So <laughs> that's why I'm such a hard out. So thank you guys very much for having me. And I, I appreciate your patience with me too. And again, for me, I, I thanks guys. I really can't thank you enough for, for asking me to be a part of this. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the work that you guys do. And, and Andy, obviously, I've gotten the chance to, to, to get, a, get to know your broadcast crew a little bit. Dave Wills used to be in the Midwest League, or at least what was once known as Midwest League. Uh, rest in peace, Midwest League. And uh, Dave was in Kane County for a long time. And so had a chance to, of course, get to know him and, and go visit with you guys a couple of years ago. Had a great time. And uh, obviously, we're all just so lucky to be able to talk about baseball and have this little silly job for a living. So, And to you, David, I can't thank you enough. Okay. Thanks, guys. Hope to see you both this summer in more normal times. Andy, jump in the car. <laughs> thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Hey, I'm Ben Clemens. I'm joined by auto expert Eric Longenhagen. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. What's going on, dude? I am sitting around at home not dealing with my car being broken, but I have had some uh, some house buying travails recently. It sounds like you and I are deep in the throes of domestic, I don't know, tomfoolery nonsense. Yeah, it's just been, I was telling the story to Dylan and Ben before we started recording and I didn't quite finish it yet. But yeah, like... For a guy who has driven less in the last calendar year than he has since he was like 18 or 19, probably, I've blown through my deductible, like my car has just become a money pit and I'm lamenting that and it cost me a day of like writing and going to games yesterday, basically. Um, but this is like the point where Ben and I haven't spoken period in like several weeks and we're going to end up catching up with one another as we talk about baseball. And so like the reason I had to take my car in is because... The Safe Light people goofed a thing that caused my check engine light to come on. And I'm at the point of the year where it was Sunday or Monday and I'm looking at the amateur calendar and going, you know, it might be a good time to spend like a week to 10 days in Southern California seeing draft guys. And so then it was like, all right, well, I got to take my car in, right? Makes and so sense. yada, 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 warranty was still in place. So everything's okay. But that's what I've been up to. I've been like hitting minor league spring training games 
watching a lot of big league stuff on TV, watching a lot of amateur stuff on TV on the weekends, hitting ASU on occasion. I'm definitely behind on a couple things. Like there's some local high school kids who uh, I haven't seen yet and want to get in and do that. And I feel like I've underserved some of the junior college stuff, but I was looking at the calendar and like, damn, getting out of town to go to Southern California this weekend sure seems pretty good uh, to see Marcelo Mayer, who I think is going to be a top five pick. This is the guy who, you know, Ben, you might remember Keone Cavaco, the Twins first rounder from a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. Marcelo Mayer was on the team as an underclassman with Cavaco. And already at that point, the area scouts were like, yeah, this guy coming up in a couple years is the better guy. <laughs> and Cavaco went in the middle of round one. That's kind of crazy. So uh, yeah, he's on my list to go see. And then Troy Melton, uh, pitcher at San Diego State, who's like been up to 97. It's sort of a relief look, but it's a big time arm strength guy here on the West Coast. I could double up with him on Saturday. So I might do like an in and out flight that day. So this is like where my world's been. What have you been, what's been striking uh, your brain about baseball lately? Oh, we have to learn it to baseball? Jeez, this, uh, <laughs> this isn't going to be quite the fun podcast I was hoping for. No, um, <laughs> there's been just like so much to watch. But the number one thing that I, I guess I wrote about in the future from now, but in the past from the future when this comes out is uh, I just like watch all of Corbin Burns' starts now. It's just, it's so enjoyable to watch him pitch. And I feel like a good... 10% of the time that you and I talk about baseball, I end up talking about Corbin Burns and you're like, yeah, we get it. You like him. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, like, I do. He's really fun to watch pitch and he is just obliterating the world right now. That's been um, like, I keep thinking, ah, you know, like he's going to not have the command one start. And he's just, uh, yeah. I guess when you're, when you have the kind of stuff that he has and you pick up a cutter literally in 2020, you're going to command it a little bit better in 2021. Yeah. But it's kind of amazing to see him picking it up so much. Aside from that, I've been trying to figure out if umpire calls are getting worse. They're not, even though it feels like they are. That's interesting. Yeah. I would, if you would have asked me, I would have said, yeah, they feel, it feels pretty erratic this year. It's a very difficult job. And I appreciate when a guy does a good job, but yeah, to my eye, it has been worse this year. Yeah. I thought that was the case too, and then I ran the numbers, and they're calling not fewer really. strikes overall, but not inconsistently. Just like every zone is getting, you're one percent more likely to get a ball called. That's like, I don't know, not matching my eye test at all because I've seen just a, a number of terrible strikes called this year. But I wonder if it's just because I'm out of practice watching baseball. To me, some of this because it's overlapping in my brain with college baseball, and the umpires in college baseball are. You know, they're going to be worse than the big league umpires most of the time. Yeah, um, on average, they have to be. Like, otherwise, they'd be big league right. umpires. It's the low and away fastballs that are most often, again, this is anecdotal, that are most often called strikes that shouldn't be, to my eye. Like, the catcher is sort of blocking you. A lot of the time, the umpire is lining up inside of, you know, between... Inside the hitter, basically, like they want right. to be when the catcher is setting up inside on a right-handed hitter, the umpire is going to be right behind them and they're going to have an unobstructed view of the plate when a catcher setting up far away from a right-handed hitter. But, you know, some of this, I think, is clever divide. Like this has been devised, I think, by some catching coordinators and coaches, like understanding the visual piece like collecting visual data points basically for catcher framing that go beyond just how much noise there is in the glove during like the time of receiving, where you set up, how how deep you receive the ball. I think if you uh, were to track like 
catcher's interference penalties Mm -hmm. that they would have risen over the last couple of years because catchers seem to know that the shallower you can receive the ball, the more likely it is to be called a strike. Especially at the bottom of the zone. Yes. Yeah, so I can tell you that I have tracked the number of catcher's interferences, and they are increasing over the past few years. So, yeah, that's exactly right. I just I just thought of this right now. So every catcher is right-handed. Do you think that one of the reasons that the strike zone low and away to lefties seems to be a little wider than to righties is because it's the catcher's left hand there. And so that gives a cleaner look to the umpire than low and away to righties the catcher is reaching across his body generally. I can see that. I think that's going to depend on... Like you can get handcuffed in that area a little more easily like your your glove is more likely to turn over uh if someone misses wide sufficiently enough but i do think that yeah like it takes the amount of strength in your forearms and wrists and hands that it takes to like reach across your body and then receive the ball in a way that presents it up into the strike zone uh is is very difficult yeah. And yeah, just just sitting and watching, this is part of the reason I think Gary Sanchez was benched last year because some of the guys too in their crouch or, you know, the one knee stuff has become more pervasive, but they kind of tell what type of pitch is coming if they set up too early, like if they're in a crouch or if they're uh if their knees are are wider, uh if their legs are bowed wider out away from their base. They look primed to have to block something in the dirt. And in those instances, it's more likely that a breaking ball is coming. Especially, you know, the, the count has a situational impact there. Right. But, uh, and certainly the base runners have a situational impact there. But that's where you really run into problems where if you're telling, if you're posturing too soon as a catcher and the runner on second can see you doing that, then they can alert the hitter basically. Uh, so like right now, as we're sitting here talking, the angel, I have the angels and the Rangers on and it's first and second with two outs and the catcher is careful not to posture until the very end. Like there's a primary posture and then a secondary one with their footwork that occurs later too, too late for the runner on second to signal to the hitter what might be uh, coming. And so like some of these nuances too, I think are contributing to stuff like cross-ups, cross-ups. We used to track cross-ups at Baseball Info Solutions. And I asked Meg to check with with them because they I think they they are partners of Fangraphs, mm-hmm. and they stopped tracking it. And that's another one with sign stealing stuff too that I, I thought would have been increasing over the last couple of years. But there's no. Do you know of anywhere publicly that, that tracks cross ups? I have not seen it. I think um, I think that it's really an interesting idea to think about. Is framing actually hurting because of pitch tipping? And it's something that you know no one really considered in framing five years ago, but. That's a very interesting point that if you're really just the complete sell out, like one leg stuck out sideways, like you're a cat sitting on a couch or something like the way that a lot of these guys catch where they're like in this very specific posture. And if that's tipping pitches, well, right. <laughs> I don't know, like maybe you're getting 1% more called strikes, but you're also getting a lot more home runs and takes your breaking ball. Yeah, I think um, in general, a lot of the changes that have been made over the years as we've been able to quantify more and more. And just some of this has progressed on the the legislative side of baseball too, right? Like with data sharing and whatnot, I've lamented this before. Uh, it like takes nuance away. But in the case of quantifying framing, 
it has added a lot of, of nuance, uh, in my opinion, because once you're sensitive to how impactful it is, even as not just as an analyst, but as a fan or an umpire yourself, right? Like it's got to change the dynamic in a way. And then like you mentioned, yeah, I think that the hitter's response over time to the the catching leaning hard into doing this stuff is, you know, there are game theory elements at play here too, where, yeah, you can glean information from it. And it's part of why I'm kind of bummed about the likelihood of electronic strike zones coming to coming to the fore here. And I guess that Dylan, this is where I'll remind you to remind me. I've got a video of from the 2019 Fall League at Salt River Fields where there was an electronic strike zone of some of the weirdest called strikes to anyone's eye, like shocking to the all three parties. You can see the umpire is shocked <laughs> that in his headset he's being told, yeah, that's a strike. And I just have a compilation of those uh, that belongs published for the first time on uh, this episode. It is going to be a weird adjustment for everybody uh, when this becomes a thing, and for sure there will be repercussions to it uh, analytically as well. But I do fear that, among other things, yeah, this kind of takes away nuance. I like that framing is a thing. I like that it's a cool skill to have. And that all, even now, some of these catchers in the minors that I'm seeing, they come in from college or high school and they're asked to catch on one knee immediately. Like, if you're a high school catcher who was drafted last year... Yeah, you have no idea how to do that. Yeah, like, who cares? Like, they're not going have to have to do that anymore by the time they're in the big leagues. Like, what are we doing? Well, there's that, but also, like, like why, like, let them work on things that are more meaningful than, like, this really arbitrary and, like, potentially down-the-road useful catching thing, like, adjusting to the fact that you're playing baseball against professional athletes, as opposed to, like, you know a team of maybe three good players and three guys who are playing baseball because they want a letter jacket. This is part of, and like this is, I think is well known mostly throughout baseball. I think that maybe there are some, there are definitely blind spots on the public side, like to some of this nuanced stuff because we're not there, right? There's just something about the culture of the clubhouse that we can't understand. It's just a thing that you have to understand firsthand. But as far as the catching stuff is concerned, the pitcher comfort with that catcher is just like, I was working on a piece. It never came to to fruition uh, months ago about left-handed catching okay, and how it doesn't exist and why. There's a young woman who did a piece. There was a sports analytics conference that streamed online from Ohio State University. And a young woman did like a, hey, why are there no left-handed catchers paper? And she basically had nothing. Like she... Her presentation was basically, there's nothing, like, I literally can't find out anything about this, really, because (laughs) there's so little precedent for any of it. And as I started talking with folks around baseball about this, and if it might be a thing that teams might seek to try, especially after, you know, some of the changes that are made, does any of that enable it? Uh, Why isn't the industry more open to it? And so much of the answers I got back were just, it's pitcher comfort. There's something weird about it. It's unlike everything, anything they've ever seen. Finding a mitt is hard. Like that's an underrated thing (laughs) that you don't realize. Okay. So that I definitely know is real because my dad tried to convince me to be a catcher when I was a kid in like coach pitch (laughs) little league or something. Yeah. And I'm lefty and it was just like not happening. Yeah. That glove does not exist. But like I can see visually why... You can't have any left-handed throwers 
on the infield other than first base. It just takes that time it takes to to square your hips around. Oh yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Right? When you play like beer league softball or whatever, you'll see lefties fill in and it's just much more awkward. There's like I mean the big thing is that you have to set your feet the opposite way a lot of the time. Right. It shouldn't affect catching. It's just Well, I don't think so. Certainly there's like there's something to be said for third base being obstructed in a unique way, but it's the same way that first base is often obstructed by the hitter for right-handed catchers. And you don't have to catch anybody stealing first base, right? Like if there's a left-handed hitter in the box and you're a right-handed throwing catcher, then throwing to first base might be more challenging than if there weren't a hitter there. If the hitter in this instance were right-handed, you don't have anybody to throw around. And so if you're a left-handed catcher and you got to throw to third base, most of the hitting population is right-handed your ability to throw to third base That's is true. obstructed. But again, we watch enough dudes backpick runners yeah. at first base. With lefties at the plate. Right? You'd have to change how you do it, but it seems feasible that it's just the mirror image of the guys who are currently backpicking runners at first base. Do you think that your throws to second would be better because they'd be tailing the right way? They'd be tailing left to right, so they would lead the fielder's glove into a tag instead of tailing right to left and maybe hitting the guy. Oh, okay. Well, are you thinking about this the wrong way? Because the right-handed throwing catchers are going to be tailing from the catching perspective from left to right, like in toward the runner. Whereas the lefty catchers, yeah, it's going to be tailing toward the shortstop side of the bag, away from the runner. Uh, oh, yeah. I guess I'm thinking about it backwards. Yeah. Well, hold up, though. Are you saying because <laughs> they throw with natural, uh, like a little bit of Tail. natural fade? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think everybody does. Yeah. If you if you just throw a ball, it has a little bit of natural tail. Yeah. I was thinking just because their left arm is farther left when they throw, like it, it's farther towards third base than a right-hander's arm. So maybe it actually offsets. Like it's got tail, but it's starting closer to the third base side. I don't know. Like it's hard to picture visually yeah. because you've never seen it before. But <laughs> That's true. I, I think that is probably a very minor factor in, in all of this. I don't think anyone's like, well, we'd have those lefty catchers if it weren't for their pesky tail on the throws to second base. 1902 is the last time that there was like a regular left-handed throwing catcher. Benny DiStefano is a guy there's been stuff written about, I think recently too, who was played three games as an emergency catcher who throws left-handed. I think this was in the 80s. Mike Squires, 1980. Then, yeah, there's like a 2006 piece by Alan Schwartz on DiStefano. And then there is a front office person who played in college with a lefty catcher, and that lefty catcher is now doing StatCast dev. <laughs> so huh. I, I don't know the person's name, and I won't, you know, even if I did, I wouldn't tell you, but... Um, hey, Hall of Famer Roger Connor played about 180 games as a left-handed middle infielder. Well, second baseman and third baseman. So yeah, these are the things like what happens, right? Like, is there something about the runner's confidence in their lead at first base that changes if the catcher is left-handed like there are all these little threads to pull the possible repercussions of someone trying this and what it might mean for like the meta game basically yeah my guess is just that it's so small that the fact that pitchers feel a little uncomfortable overwhelms it and again that is the piece that everybody to a man on the phone was just like you're underrating this piece of it this aspect is a hugely important thing and so I agree with that. I think that's fine, but I still would like to see it tried. But yeah, then it's like, all right, we'll go get a mitt. Find me a mitt. It's like, all right, it's really hard. <laughs> you have to get like a lefty catcher's mitt, custom done. But yeah, what else is what else has been washing over you for the last couple of weeks? Pitchers are really good, man. Like 
I know that that's a really generic thing to say, but pitchers are really good. I they're just getting better too. I don't know how much of this is the the fact that they're finding better sticky stuff to use instead of the ball spinning more, and how much of it is that they're just getting better at designing their pitchers. But I don't see how we're escaping doing something to limit the the skill and effectiveness of pitchers, just given how every year they come back and they throw harder and the ball spins more and their breaking balls are nastier and it's just everything. Every time that I watch them, I'm just like, wow, that guy's better than he was last year. I'm still not sure how I feel about it. Something about the the visual electricity of contemporary pitching excites me when I watch baseball since so much of the game is is watching that interaction between the hitter and the pitcher. I think that if you take the long view of it and really just acknowledge the fact that most of our recent technological and scientific understanding of baseball has has helped pitching because it's it's there the pitcher's in control. It's easy to it's easier to measure. You know, no one's reacting to anything. Right. And so like the way that we understand and develop pitching and those are not one thing. That's two things. The way we understand and develop pitching has both really, really improved over like the last 10 years. Whereas like hitting stuff inarguably at least has not developed as quickly. And so then the question becomes, all right, well, will it at some point catch up? Is there just because there's room for hitting to catch up? Does that mean that eventually it will? Whereas are we like approaching our ceiling of our ability to understand some of the stuff with pitching? Yeah. One thing that I talked with Barton Smith about on Effectively Wild, actually, is what will happen when they can develop a pitching machine that works. Because there are no pitching machines right now that throw with gyroscopic spin. I was at the, the Rangers' backfields a couple days ago, and as the games were going on on one field, they had multiple pitching machines set up on another field, and they were feeding live rounds into both machines. Like You know how the coach is behind the L screen? And they'll hold the baseball up in the air to let the hitter know that it's coming and then drop Drop it in. in. Okay, so this guy was had two balls simultaneously and he'd hold them both up and then bring them both down to the machines and he would only release one into the machine and some machines were spitting out fastballs and changeups and the others were spitting out breaking balls. And so I should have taken high speed of the spin of each pitch coming out of the machine because maybe there is something like that going on. Yeah, so I I know that Barton said there were that a few people were attempting to develop them. That would be really interesting. Like I know that slider machines don't really work, right? I don't know. Like they don't. Yeah, I don't know that they don't actually have the the same kind of spin because the way that the uh, I mean, what do you call those things? The the thing that spits the ball out. I don't know the right word for it. The actual things that impart the force to the ball, like the wheels. Yeah, like I don't know the special name for them or whatever, but those. Because yeah, of the way they grip the ball, they give it like transverse spin. And he was saying like if you could make it have more like gyroscopic spin, more like a like a jugs machine in football or something. Yeah, that would be sick. Yeah, that might uh that might be a step in the right direction for hitters, but it's also just hard to like optimize hitting to nearly the same extent as pitching because it's reactive. Right. There's something begs the question, right? Well then how can you understand which hitters how can you measure their hand eye coordination basically? How right. can you measure their like cognitive aspects? Of hitting. Yeah. I mean, maybe someone will figure that out, but... Yeah, maybe they will. That's not going to be written about on fan graphs for quite a while, because they're not going to tell us if they do. Right, yeah. It's a, I'm sure that it's a thing that some teams have already explored, but today on Twitter, I followed someone who's a PhD and, and wrote about this stuff recently, actually. What is their name? Let me go... I'm going to look at my followers real quick to find out who it is. 
Jason Thamanson. It's his last name is The Manson. Uh, so he wrote about it. Yeah, on the Hardball Times. Uh, he's written stuff in the past for THT. And this recent article that he wrote was at Sports Info Solutions. Interesting. Yeah. So people oh, should check man. that out. The Melton Lamette forearm tightness. Great. That's great. He threw two innings. <laughs> yeah, Lamette. I saw Lamette, uh, his spring debut against the Giants. He was in there for two innings and then like piggybacked with Adrian Morihone, who now has had Tommy John. <laughs> no, he threw one inning that night and his stuff was really good. But yeah, it's funny that the Padres spent well, it's not funny, it's unfortunate and sad that they spent the offseason building their rotation depth. And here here we go. Like we're gonna have the same the same problem is occurring. Like Morihone down, Lamette down, Gore still not looking sharp at the alt site, Patino gone as part of the Snell deal. So, you know, like there's Nabil Kreismat's going to be big for them, I think. He's going to be really interesting to watch. A dude with a really hilarious like parachute changeup who can really pitch. He's awesome to watch, and I think he's going to play a big, uh, a big role in the Padres' rotation at some point this year. Who else? Like The Braves have had a bunch of injuries, too. Uh, Soroka again, and now Acuna. I don't know if he... I saw the other night that he was having like a problem with his, his abs, but I don't know if what the long-term prognosis of that has been yeah, I, I, half the brewers lineup is down i feel like yeah uh so it's already the, the yankees too have just sort of not really gotten off the ground is there anybody standings wise where you're looking at it already and you're like yeah maybe we're we're 10 percent of the way into the season now you know who who kind of looks not the best and like seattle seattle at 11 and 7 tied with oakland to top the uh the al west the angels are nipping at their heels uh, do you think the Mariners are for real? I mean, no. I don't like no. I don't think they're awful. Like they've done it with no Kyle Lewis so far. You could argue that the college pitching in the system could be pushed, and if they're in it midseason, then all of a sudden, boom! Here's Logan Gilbert. Boom! Here's George Kirby. Emerson Hancock. I don't think has thrown yet. I don't know what's going on there. But yeah, like I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um. I just don't. Think I don't believe they in the depth. Have I don't think enough players? Depth. Yeah, basically yeah. that. Like Kyle Seager's great. Kyle Lewis is great. Mitch Haniger's great if he's healthy. I really like Ty France. I think he's underrated. Yeah, I whiffed on that. I should have been in. I forwarded him, and it really should have been at least like, hey, you know, this guy's done nothing but mash, and I put him in a category of impact up in the forty plus or above somewhere. But yeah, I mean, he really has to hit. He's not doing it with his defense. Well, yeah, but. And also, there's there's like no precedent. Well, there's not no precedent, but if you look at the guys who who are as aggressive as he is, who have mostly just been DHs for the last like twenty years, it's a bunch of guys who were okay. Yeah. Who turn out to just it's like Trumbo and. I think it'd be infeasible to hit on every call. Like, like it's probably optimal to have some misses, right? Anyway, he was a great pick in on day on day three. I think he's going to contribute for sure. He's a good role player. They did a good job um, on getting like players who I like decently in the was that the Austin Adams trade, Aaron Nola trade, Austin Nola, Austin Nola, <laughs> and Austin Adams, and Austin Adams, and Taylor Williams, dude. You Austin's just wait. Like the longer you do this, the more those there will be. I can barely keep straight the the Mississippi State guys. There's a Logan Tanner, and there's Is a there Tanner, Tanner Logan. Come on, there's a Tanner Allen. <laughs> 
and a Logan Taylor. And then, of course, there are like three Logan Allens. Yeah, Logan Allen is like a lefty and a righty, and he's a starter and a reliever. Pitches for several teams. I'm never going to get that one right. There's another one, too, that Mississippi State's got another like Logan or Tanner somewhere on their roster. They're, I think if I had... Have you watched any amateur stuff? Have you watched any college ball? No. I was going to say, yeah. like, I've seen some on in the background on ESPN or something, or ESPN2, but I haven't really been paying a lot of attention. Yeah, I, you, I think you'd enjoy it. You should put on, this weekend, put on Vandy and Mississippi State. Oh, you know what? I guess I watched the last few innings of Jack Leiter's no-hitter. Vandy and Mississippi State this weekend is the de facto, these are the best two teams in my opinion. No disrespect Ooh. to Arkansas. Is it a, uh, a two-game series? It's three. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so it'll be like... Rocker, Rocker, Lighter, and Mississippi State has uh, Will Bednar, who's like a comp round guy, and Christian McLeod, who is like 87, 89, but you'll see watching him, like how his stuff plays. It's that lefty with vertical action type of guy. And then I don't know if Eric Sarantola will throw for Mississippi State, but that's the other one where it's like elite stuff and 20 control. And so, yeah. Like, <laughs> 20 those are the control. <laughs> Those are the best, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what his deal is. but He's um, Dylan Maples up there. You'd, you'd get a kick out of watching that. Uh, and it's in Nashville rather than Starkville. Starkville, if you watch the Ole Miss or the Mississippi State games, it's wild, man. It's packed. It's absolutely packed at those places. Like now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, any it's relation to David Bednar, by the way? I've never heard that last name before. Is Will Bednar from PA as well? You think I'd know that? That's a good question. He's yeah from Pittsburgh. David is his brother. All yeah. right. I have never heard Bednar except for David Bednar, so felt okay about that one. David is one of those guys where it's like, oh, he went to Lafayette. I'm gonna dig on this guy some more. <laughs> and it's like, oh wait, he's good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'll probably watch that this weekend, assuming I it's on a channel that I receive. Probably is. You'll. I will figure. Uh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Uh, well, it was good catching up with you, man. You too. Wait, I have one last question for you. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I meant to ask this at the beginning, and I never asked it. How many miles does a scout put on their car in a year? Oh, dude. It's way more than it needs to be because a lot of them get – they do the math, and getting reimbursed for your miles makes you money. And so rather than fly to Albuquerque and then, like, rent a car and drive somewhere, they will just drive to get reimbursed for the miles. <laughs> so, uh, like, this weekend trip I want to do in SoCal real quick. The drive is its own thing. It's, there are parts of it that I really love and places that I like to stop and I seek to do that stuff again. But getting on a plane for an hour and touching down uh, and then going to my two games and then going back to the plane, like, that sounds super rad. I would never want to drive there. If I didn't have to, but yeah, scouts just go out of their way to drive. They're on the road, some of them 200 days a year. And yeah, it's like an absolute beating. They have company cars, a lot of them. And so you're talking about like, gosh, how many miles it might even be in the book and I've just forgotten it. But like, I'd say that it's a trip at a shot sometimes is going to be pretty routinely like 600 round trip miles. When you're driving from like from here to Vegas or from here to LA or Albuquerque or El Paso or whatever. So, yeah, I think you're looking at it like in well into the tens of thousands of miles every year. So, I'll then leave you with one final question. I purchased a car 
in June 2019. It's the first car I've owned since I was in college because I lived in New York until now. How many miles do you think are on that car? You bought it new? Let's do since I bought it. No, since you bought it? And you bought it when? June of 2019. Like 350 miles? <laughs> Actually, like uh, like 9,000. So, oh, you've really been driving that much? <laughs> yeah, just like weekend trips, going skiing, driving down to like Paso Robles. It's like three hours south. I never drive in the city. I've done okay. it like roughly zero times. I thought that was like a lot until I talked to our friends who live in LA and they're putting that much on it every year. Yeah. Yeah. I'm My GTI is like well into the, I'm almost at 100,000 miles in it and there were like 25,000 on it when I bought it in 2016 yeah i guess arizona like arizona lends itself to driving anyway i feel like because yeah just the way it's spread out everything is set up yeah and then also going to games does well that is our car related uh (laughs) content for the day i'm super curious about this stuff sorry for listeners who aren't thanks to everyone for joining us for another fangraphs audio segment for ben clemens i'm eric longenhagen This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you like the show. If you want to give back but money is tight, you can help us by just telling someone about the program or any of the other great things at our site. From the daily articles to the statistics database to the roster resource pages and everything else. We will be back next week with another podcast. Have a good weekend.